people in Melbourne I know are mad keen to get out and socialize and be outdoors and be in the city and to have great experiences. So there's a lot of money to be made. People just have to stick their neck out for a short period of time and make it happen. Today on Dirty Linen, we are taking a slight detour away from people who work in hospitality to speak to Associate Professor Quentin Stevens. Uh, Quentin Stevens is an Associate Professor in Urban Design at RMIT, and he is very interested in something that, when I heard these words, I had to find out more, temporary and tactical urbanism. As people in Victoria speak about outdoor dining and how that's going to become a bigger part of our hospitality experience, I thought Quentin was the perfect person to speak to. Welcome to the podcast, Quentin. Thank you. Thanks, Danny. So tell us, what is temporary and tactical urbanism? Well, temporary urbanism is a phenomenon that's always been there. We've always had temporary market stalls, uh, temporary um, play areas set up, uh, temporary events that come to town like the circus. But what uh, happened in recent decades is governments and various other actors have become more aware of the, the need and the potentials of transforming parts of the public realm in, the, in a short time frame, um, setting them up maybe in, in just a day, operating them for just a month or uh, over the summer, and then shutting them down. So the pandemic's given a, a new impetus to this, but uh, it's been an emerging trend uh, throughout the world, especially in um, cities that have seen economic downturns for one reason or another, where there's opportunities and needs to repurpose spaces and for entrepreneurs to work out new ways of activating spaces, but doing that in a, a relatively small, low-risk way temporarily. And some of those initiatives then do become more permanent. Okay, so what what differentiates a temporary use of space from a more permanent use? Is it just the infrastructure, the fact that you can pack it up easily and move it away, or are there other elements? Yes, well, typically it is the 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 key fact is that the use has to be removable, often in a very short time frame. I mean, you can temporarily use a floodplain area, and when uh, there's an announcement that floodwaters are coming down, you may have less than twenty four hours to pack up and go. Um, in other cases, it may be that you're temporarily using private land because no one has uh, um, has got around to d- redeveloping it yet. But once they find a buyer or a tenant, then they say, okay, your lease is over, you have to go. So sometimes there's um, very limited timeframes and sometimes those timeframes are actually unknown. And being temporary means being mobile and being adaptable to these changing situations. You may find, for example, that uh, you can use one site and then uh, development has to happen. Um, a good example is the Melbourne Metro Tunnel uh, or any big road redevelopment project where it proceeds in stages. So you may be able to use one piece of land for a certain amount of time and then have to move on to a different one that's got a different configuration and use it for a, a fixed or unfixed um, period of time as well. Mm. So people that are listening to this podcast are particularly interested in hospitality, but what are some of the other temporary uses of space that you've seen in your research? Well, one one thing that's been um, in the news a lot recently, of course, is putting in temporary cycle lanes or extra pedestrian space on streets. So that's, that's happened in Melbourne, but it's happened all over the world where uh, car volumes have dropped and other uses of the street have already taken over. Um, we find temporary, uh, temporarily streets are closed for children to play in, either at fixed periods of time or for a, a limited period of time. Again, once uh, could be just for a summer. 
Um, and yesterday was actually International Car Free Day, so it was very widespread that cities, um, Berlin shut down 24 sections of streets just so that children could play on them. Wow. It's, it's, it, it is happening a lot, but of course these things are only temporarily there. It's quite hard to research because they're usually gone before we can turn up and have a look and talk to the people involved. And we can only talk about what happened in the past and what might happen in the future. Um, I've also been doing a lot of research about a phenomenon um, called city beaches. Now, Australia, of course, has many beautiful natural beaches, but in Europe where there's not quite so many and a lot of people can't easily get to the, the beach, entrepreneurs and hospitality industry have been reconfiguring disused spaces by spreading out sand, putting palm trees in pots, putting up um, deck chairs and, and umbrellas, in many cases so they can sell drinks and food. But in some cases, the, the same kind of environment has been created just by local communities so that families have somewhere to gather, so that the youth of the town have somewhere to um, hang out together in the summer, those who can't afford to go on a holiday to the real beach. It's so interesting. It's like, I guess sand is something that's not too hard to uh, just spread out. It doesn't, yeah, you don't need to, well, I don't know what you would need to do. You wouldn't need to put down, yeah, you don't need to build anything. You just need to spread out a whole bunch of sand and eventually it's going to be, uh, yeah, it's going to be thick enough for people to walk around in and sit in and play in. It's really quite extraordinary to think about a, a city beach like that. Well, and uh, there are hundreds of them, literally. Um, and so the, the expertise has sort of developed. What fascinated me, I, in my research, I interviewed a lot of hospitality entrepreneurs who had um, undertaken this, um, usually by going and looking how other people had done it and, and learning the lessons. But these people had never been involved in physically developing spaces before, which is, of course, my area of expertise. So I was talking to people who knew very well how many patrons you need, how many staff you need, what all the... Um, food vending requirements are, etc. But these people were having to learn how to negotiate new um, permit regimes, how to get hold of these this, um, materials and equipment, how to deliver them and spread them out on the site, how much time and money it would cost to do that, um, how they would lock away everything so they would be secure when it was closed. Um, you know, and, and they were really partly very, um, part of the reason they were so creative in doing these things was they didn't have the same expectations and conventional approach to doing it. They were winging it and they were thinking, okay, I want to run a hospitality business outdoors. Um, how am I going to get these 100 tonnes of sand that just arrived on the back of a truck spread out so that people can come and, and buy drinks here tomorrow? And with, are the ones in your experience, are they public spaces that people are able to um, commercialise you know, uh, or are they private spaces where someone's just got a particular uh, site and then they've commercialised it as part of their own outdoor space? Uh, both, both end. Um, in some cases, there are vacant pieces of land that are in private ownership, but um, as I mentioned before, the owner of that site might not have a long-term tenant or a long-term use. Um, it might be completely abandoned. In some cases, we're talking about completely marginal spaces um, underneath roads or rail lines. Um, for example, um, back alleys, uh, places that you wouldn't imagine as being public or being places that people would want to go, but that's part of their unique charm. And so um, people would have to find out first who they even would approach. So uh, one example of that in Victoria, there's uh, VicTrack. They manage all the rail corridors and they own a lot of land alongside the rail corridors. Now, they have a special um, unit of uh, VicTrack who negotiates with local community groups and local entrepreneurs who want to temporarily occupy some of the space that they own. 
And um, as long as you meet their requirements, they will lease it to you at a nominal rate. Um, so we find people, for example, doing um, pop-up community gardens alongside these rail corridors. Um, in other cases, there are fully, fully public examples where local governments want to have spaces activated, either because the spaces are new or unloved or they, they can't make a long-term investment right now. And so they, they put out tenders for people to come and, and activate the space and vending drinks and food may be part of that, but if it's more generally about creating a safe and welcoming atmosphere in part of a park, for example. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are two spaces that in Australia that I know of that you know you're um, that this uh, pop, pop into my mind when we talk about this, and one of them's the beach in Brisbane, and I think it's South Bank, and that's a public space where it does um, gently slope down to water, and you know people go there with the kids, and the kids have a paddle, and um, yeah, you can have a picnic, uh, and the other one, so that's obviously public space, and the other one is Arboria Float, which is on the Yarra River, um, just below Flinders Street Station, which is a, a private uh, enterprise attached to the Arbury Bar, which is runs alongside, I think it's Platform 8 or 12 along there on Flinders Street. Um, so, I mean, what are the kinds of considerations when you're thinking about creating uh, outdoor spaces for the public? Well, I think... Um Again, this is this is an area of innovation and experimentation. So there's a lot of negotiations to go on about um, the assignment of rights and responsibilities for things like public safety, um, accessibility, um, who who carries all those risks, and and how and and there I'm talking both on paper and in practical terms. So what happens if someone falls into the river? How much effort and and who signs off on an arrangement of a space such that no one accidentally falls into the water, um, and who who does in the end take the blame when such an event, as unlikely as it might be, does happen. Um, so, uh, in in some of the cases um, where people had been successful in Germany with these beaches, um, one one operator I spoke to, they employed someone full time just to negotiate all the permits. You know, they would they would have to start months in advance each year of in the winter, knowing what they wanted to do in the summer, and they may have had to move their site or they may have a different budget to what they had last year, and they would have to go through the permitting process, go speak to the fire department, speak to the water authority, speak to the public safety office, um, you know maybe speak to the economic development team at the local council and say we're offering something, what can you do give us in return. And the governments themselves were learning new skills, as I think the the Victorian and um, local governments in Victoria will have to do in the coming weeks, will learn new ways of working with each other internally, because many of these um, actors haven't had to necessarily speak to each other in the same way about the same kinds of issues. And they're just finding out what kind of working processes will make it all actually happen to everyone's satisfaction. Well, it's interesting because there's this sort of society-wide uh, impetus and motivation to get businesses happening and to get public space activated again when it's safe to do so. And along with that comes this general view that, oh, we've just got to cut the red tape. But in, in many cases, the red tape is there to keep us safe. And as you say, it's there, you know, those rules and regulations are there to work out a, a chain of command and to work out, you know, who we need to hold responsible 
responsible for certain things. And um, yeah, as we as we see in Victoria very well, it is quite interesting to look at chains of responsibility and to uh, just find out exactly where the buck does stop. And I think as a society, yeah, we do want the buck to stop somewhere. We want to know that somebody's looking out for our safety and our, our other interests at the same time as uh, wanting things to not be too complicated for business in such a way as to stymie any activity at all. Yes. Well, I, th- I think communication is is key. And one of the advantages that a lot of people in the hospitality industry have and um, is that they're people. people. Um, and many of the entrepreneurs that I'd spoken with had actually come from various branches of the entertainment industry and media. They were uh, concert promoters, had worked at radio stations or with local newspapers. And so they, they had a good feel for who to talk to, how to talk to people, what messages to get across, how to present the options, how to ask the right questions. And, you know, I think that's, that's key to being innovative. innovative. That's, that's something that Melbourne and Victoria pride themselves on is being creative. And um, so the creativity is partly about the physical product that you, you produce or the service that you provide, but it's also creativity in working with others to make sure that things do go smoothly and to to sort sort out all the issues as you go along because um, everything is unknown to everybody. And as you say, everyone wants to make it happen and it's not just red tape. Um, we can't just wipe away health and safety requirements because they're inconvenient. Um, a, a good illustration of a lot of these issues having been worked through is food trucks, yeah, which is a, a temporary pop-up kind of dining experience that people are pretty familiar with. And I would... I would ha- imagine that food trucks may well be part of the solution and part of the competition that emerges in the context of this opening up of uh, public spaces for dining. Well, food trucks have had to deal with a whole lot of the issues about food safety, um, as well as issues about parking, uh, about public safety of where people can sit, about where the rubbish ends up. Um, so those things can be sorted out. Um, and entrepreneurs are task oriented. You know, they they know what the sort of key outcomes that they have are, and they just have to navigate their way against a lot of these requirements that are, for good reasons, relatively fixed, and to see how the solution can happen. So, um, I mean, an example I, I know of that from these um, city beaches was they they always want to put in pools. It's you know something nice to sit with your feet in the water and drink a cocktail. Um, some way to entertain the children so that the parents can stay a little longer. Um, but you, you can't just set up a, a public swimming pool without having someone supervising it, without ensuring that it's safe, the water is clean, um, that it's um, tested regularly, etc. But there are ways of going around that by in terms of how you classify everything. Is it a swimming pool or is it a, a decorative feature? Is it public or is it private? Are you charging people to use it? Do you have to be a member? Sorting out all those uh, issues around the vision that you have of what you want to do, again, is is the creativity that comes with it. Um, So there's a certain amount of um, toleration from the um, regulatory side of recognising that we have to find a new way of getting to the goal. We can't stick with the, the regulatory frames exactly as they were, but we have to work out an agreement that meets the principles of all the needs and allows us to actually achieve the outcome. As it sounds like, you know, the 
the kinds of conversations that you're talking about, they involve a lot of goodwill. And when I think about urban design and urban planning, I suppose I hadn't really thought much about the emotion that might go with it or the the motivation behind it, which is, you know, you, you sort of need people standing next to each other trying to solve a problem, not these, uh, not a more combative relationship where someone's trying to build something and someone else is trying to stop them. So do you think that... Um, I mean, is there a, is there a is this the kinds of things that can happen in urban design and urban planning in your experience? And do you think something like a pandemic is a good opportunity for people to reframe some of these conversations? Well, you asked me to define temporary and tactical urbanism, and I guess a distinction I'd make is that tactical urbanism, uh, as a, as a term, is trying to um, focus in particular on actors who haven't traditionally been involved in these processes and therefore don't um, fit into the existing frames and relationships and that are reliant on asking people and goodwill, as you say. So we're talking about community groups, non-profit organisations, as I mentioned before, entrepreneurs who aren't familiar with working through urban design as a, a set of processes. And um, the, the tactics are finding a way, navigating a way to a solution where one is not already laid out. And that's why I was emphasizing, you, you, you know, you sometimes need to hire someone full time to navigate it for you. There's increasingly um, middle, middle agents who come in between the, the entrepreneur or the business operator and the, the faceless government entity in order to um, help those two groups to work together in ways that they're all unfamiliar with. Um, that is, people who are experts in uh, what we often refer to in our industry as placemaking, because placemaking is not just about the physical making, it's also about getting all of the goodwill, all of the social arrangements, all of the economic dimensions in order, finding out what kind of, for example, what kind of funding support there might be for certain kinds of initiatives and using that to align your goals to those possibilities so that you can track your way forward. Um, be, because uh, there are a lot of unknowns. Um, I mean, urban design has increasingly tried to, as, as part of urban planning, tried to be more consultative and more open and more f flexible. Um, and again, that's, that's part of the whole communicative um, dimension. And um, I think that, you know, this the pandemic presents an opportunity where there is a lot of goodwill, a lot of uh, different actors see a common need and see that they will all have to be a bit flexible to do that. And temporary activations are the perfect opportunity to test out and develop some of those possibilities because you're not asking everyone to sell the farm, to give up their interest you're asking them to allow it to happen for a while see how it works and that all parties remain open to making adjustments as you go along so if the sound's a bit loud are you going to be able to put some kind of sound dampening equipment are you going to compensate the people affected you know what kinds of adjustments might be made no one necessarily knows the answer up front but doing it temporarily allows you to feel your way towards an optimal solution yeah, interesting. So if I think about outdoor dining, I can imagine everything from picnics on the grass. Now I can imagine a city beach. I can think about a milk crate on the footpath and I can uh, think about serious marquee-like structures. Um, 
what if I'm standing out the front of my restaurant looking at the outdoor space, I'm thinking, no, the beach isn't really going to be the thing and I don't have a food truck and there's no grass. What what kinds of solutions might I not be thinking of? Well, I think in general terms, we can think about the fact that outdoor dining, I mean, we can all, we all have access to food. You can get food ready, made food delivered to your home. Um, when, we're, when we're dining, we're also talking about an experience. Yeah, that um, the, if we think about the broader context of an experience-based economy where people are spending money in order to have a service which includes an overall experience, we're talking about creating an atmosphere, both in terms of the actions of the people who, who serve us, who, who host us, and a physical atmosphere. So a beach is really just one uh, image or one packaging of a, of a set of elements but in more general terms, I think we can think about uh, the comfort, the physical comfort that a, a setting might offer so that people stay as long as possible, spend as much as possible, are as keen to tell others and to come back. Um, so uh, again, because city beaches are what I know, I can talk about the wide variety of comfortable furnishings that they provide, um, cushions, shade, so that you're not too much exposed to the sun um, air misters for when it gets too hot, um, that uh, the chairs, the umbrellas, every physical element that's deployed is adjustable so that people can maximise the comfort for themselves and for the social kind of environment that they're trying to create. So, of course, tables and chairs, uh, I'm, it's pretty clear that movable tables and chairs will be the the backbone of or the, the key element of what a lot of outdoor dining is is going to be but making it comfortable and making it flexible and giving it an where possible atmosphere so that it's differentiated from all the many other hundreds of thousands of providers who every vendor is going to be competing with i think that's really key and also in terms of atmosphere it's amazing how small an investment financially one might have to make in order to really create a very strong atmosphere. You mentioned that sand is very cheap, but there's all kinds of ways of changing the surfacing on on which uh, the food vending happens. Um, rollout grass is very cheap. Decking is uh, another possibility. Um, and I think one thing that's uh, good to keep in mind in the context of equipment and elements um, that the people might bring is they they don't necessarily even have to be purchased. Um, in my experience, a lot of these uh, temporary equipment is rented and or donated by sponsors if people are willing to have sponsors' logos on everything. So there's um, a huge industry in, in Germany just creating branded deck chairs to put on these city beaches. There are, there are even musicians who go around and um, make tours from one site to another all over the country, one city beach to another because there's enough of them that they have a, a sort of critical mass to work together. Um, I think that uh, along with comfort in, in atmosphere, we can also think about the, the various props that might be brought in in order to, to give a particular kind of um, atmosphere to a site, whether it's plants. Um, in, in the context of city beaches, people would display surfboards or boats, uh, ships, helms, you know, anything that helped to um, fix into the, the customer's mind, the visitor's mind, 
that they were in an escapist kind of environment where they could really relax, have fun, and would want to come back and do it again and post pictures of the, the visit that they made to this site. You know, I, th- I think that's where a lot of the competition lies, not just in the quality of the food, but in the presentation that comes with it. Yeah, well, it's it's a relief to hear you say that you think a lot of this uh, infrastructure can be rented or or supplied by sponsors because I think one thing that a lot of restaurants don't have is a lot of space to store things, not to mention the money to purchase extra um, infrastructure. I mean, I also imagine, you know, outdoor storage, you know, perhaps um, local councils can put, I don't know, like uh, shipping containers in certain areas where people can store their stuff overnight or um, if the weather's uh, not right. I mean, is that the kinds of things that people could be thinking of as well? Uh, no doubt. I mean, shipping containers are ubiquitous in, in the context of these temporary uses because they are cheap. Um, you can buy or rent them for, um, I think you can buy one for a couple of thousand dollars if you find a way of getting it delivered and have somewhere that you can park it. Um, and it's secure. It's completely waterproof. It's easily lockable. Um, and it's pretty hard to pick it up and take it away. Um, they're not just useful as storage areas. They're often used as um, additional service areas because when you, you're talking about physically distancing, spreading out um a, a dining area or a hospitality area, you're also often talking about having to have various service points spread around it. And that's also an opportunity to differentiate and create different atmospheres in different parts by having a, a sort of outer bar as well as a, a the indoor site where most of the cooking, et cetera, gets done. Um, again, food trucks or um, prefabricated units, uh, toilet blocks are often um, rented for these kinds of temporary outdoor um, entrepreneurial ventures. And it, it is hard to, to suddenly um, create all uh, the sort of whole ecology for this thing on the spot. But as I was suggesting, um, it's amazing when there is scale and when there is an entrepreneurial possibility how um, middlemen or middle agents uh, suddenly emerge who are able to say, you need, um, you know, you need 500 tables set up every morning at, at 10 a.m. Yes, we can do that. You need us to be able to rent you some, rent you a, a stage so you can have a performance one night a week, and and then disassemble it again before midnight. Yes, we can do that. Because if there if there's money in it, um, and if there's scale, which I think there will be, um, you know, people work out how to um, gain efficiencies and how to make the most of these opportunities. Mm, well, as you say, yeah, opportunity is the word. Is this an exciting time to be an urban planner? I think I think so. Um, again, because of the sheer scale and the, the openness that so many parties involved have, um, because so many of these things have been happening, um, you know, it's been decades of food trucks, temporary beaches, um, um, and people do know about these uh, landmark examples. I was thinking, for example, in Yarraville, um, there was a street closure on Ballarat Street near the railway station in Yarraville. Um, the shopkeepers were, this was um, now already eight years ago, in 2012, I think. The, the shopkeepers were initially against it because they said, well, it'll drive, traffic won't be able to get through, it'll drive away customers. And once it was there temporarily for uh, a few months, they became some of the strongest advocates to the council saying, yes, this absolutely has to repeat. And in the end, it became permanent. And when I say permanent, they could rip it up uh, very quickly if they had to, but it's been 
permanently fixed onto the road um, for about six years now, grass, um, uh, climbing surfaces, um, extra seating, etc. But but there's only these few landmark cases. Now we see an opportunity where we'll have hundreds of thousands of possible solutions and entrepreneurial innovations in, in this area, and we'll have councils all over the states and indeed all over the country, all over the world, who are working through the possibilities of how to do this. And I think best practice can spread very quickly. And I think people will... Again, um, these experiments will provide opportunities to to see what kinds of outcomes we can produce and what kinds of innovations we can produce. Mm. Oh, you do paint a very exciting picture of uh, shared use of public space, and I, I know that hospitality operators are so creative and so nimble and. Uh, they've proven that certainly over the past six or seven months. Have you got any final words of um, advice for hospitality people, Quentin, as perhaps they're a little bit dubious or sceptical or overwhelmed or undercashed and uh, and considering outdoors dining? Um, well, look, I I think we can't um, we can't negate the challenges. Um, and it may sound negative, uh, but I I would say as a way of ending, it doesn't always work. But of course, entrepreneurs know that. It's all about risks and all about innovating within those risks and adapting to them to find the rewards. So um, as much as it takes people outside of their comfort zone, um, people in Melbourne I know are mad keen to get out and socialise and be outdoors and be in the city and to have great experiences. So there's a lot of money to be made. People just have to stick their neck out for a short period of time and make it happen. Love it. That's really, yeah, very inspiring. I feel like opening an outdoor dining area myself now, but I won't. I'm just going to go visit a lot of them. Uh, Quentin, thank you so much. Yeah. Well, almost everyone I interviewed said the same thing. They said, you know, you should start one of these. You'll do <laughs> That's well. Great. So I leave it to others to actually go out and do that. We can just buy the drinks. Um, thank you so much for your time, Quentin. Really appreciate it. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you, Dan. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. We spend a week thrashing around each issue, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This is a Deep in the Weeds production.